Well, good morning to you all. I, I want you to know this is quite a cultural, cross-cultural experience for me to come to the West Coast. A question I would ask, what in the world is this? This is Reformed Baptist California style. And I love it, by the way. I love it. So when I take it back to Michigan and suggest it, I'll let you take the heat for my suggestion back there in Michigan. I, I do. I, I, I really enjoy being with you all here. I love the flavor. I love the climate of these dear people that you are here. And one thing that has really encouraged me about this morning, and that is that Trey is back. You wonder, he had his first contact with Reformed Baptist people, and he actually returned. <laughs> what a joy. You do encourage our hearts, Trey. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, you go to Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and way back there in the corner is Song of Solomon. And let's begin this morning by reading verses 1 through 7 of Song of Solomon. Now, the theme we're dealing with is encouragement, adrenaline for the soul. And here the husband is giving adrenaline to his bride. How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins and not one of them has lost her young. Your Lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away." I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your mercies are new this morning. We thank you for your great faithfulness, for caring for us through those helpless hours of the night. And now we pray that you would help us in these hours of sitting in the orbit of your word. And we pray that the Lord Jesus would come and grab our chins and tell us truth that we need to hear. For our families in particular this morning, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody here watch Downton Abbey? You men, you can raise your hands if you watched it with your... Right, Walter, well done, well done. In a British period drama, and it's Downton Abbey, set in the early 20th century, a local farmer, one Mr. Drake, comes down with a case of dropsy, otherwise known as congestive heart failure, and he becomes a patient of the small-town doctor, Dr. Clarkson, if you'll remember. And poor Mrs. Drake looks on as her husband progressively swells up with excessive fluid, particularly around the heart. Death seems inevitable. But who will take care of her and her several young children who are now staring at a life without a husband and a father? So then a nurse appears, it's Elizabeth or Isabel Crawley, if you'll remember, and she recommends to Dr. Clarkson an innovative but risky surgical procedure that might save Mr. Drake's life. It enlists a controversial substance called adrenaline. 
And nearly widowed and desperate, Mrs. Drake approves the procedure, so a rare vial of adrenaline is ordered and arrives from London. And then the doctor, Dr. Clarkson, pierces Mr. Drake's chest cavity with his enormous needle and begins to quickly drain off pints of heart-drowning fluid. And as expected, this stress to the heart induces a cardiac arrest and Mr. Drake's heart stops beating. And then Nurse Isabel calmly hands to the doctor a syringe of adrenaline, which is then injected directly to the heart area. And that adrenaline acts as a cardiac jump starter, and Mr. Drake almost instantly springs into a healthy heartbeat again. You see, it's adrenaline that is the life-restoring invigorator in this account, and the entire Drake household was the beneficiary. So the thesis of what we're working on is that encouragement is like adrenaline. And in healthy households, it shouldn't only be used as an exotic delicacy, but instead it should be on tap as part of the daily family diet. And that's the emphasis that I want to make this morning. Encouragement brings a healthy pulse to the whole household. And I want to consider the implications of this in this hour for our marriages. So I see that we have some men here and sitting alongside of their brides. We're just going to have two main headings in this hour. You you see that in your outlines there. Very simple this morning. First, we'll deal with husbanding, and secondly, we'll deal with wifing. So come on first to husbanding. Husbanding. Brace yourself, men. I'm coming after you. A famine of encouragement can bring a marriage to cardiac arrest. In the Atlantic. There was an article published. It was called Masters of Love, and it reported on four decades of research by the psychologist John Gottman. He conducted research on thousands of couples to discover what makes relationships work. It was called the esteemed Gottman Institute. They set up what was called a love lab And they brought in newlywed couples and hooked them up to electrodes and asked them to begin discussing the health of their relationships. And during the discussion, the electrodes measured the couple's blood flow, heart rate, sweat production. And then the couples went home and the researchers contacted them six years later to find out if they were still married. And as the researchers studied all the data that they had gathered, they found two distinct groups. There were the masters, and there were the disasters. The masters were those who were still married after six years, and the disasters were those who either had ended their marriages or were miserably unhappy in their marriages. You see, the disasters had appeared calm during those interviews six years earlier, but the electrodes recorded something different in their physiology. I quote, their heart rates were quick, their sweat glands were active, and their blood flow was fast. The couples demonstrated a more active physiology They were more aggressive toward each other, that's the disasters, and they showed signs of being in fight-or-flight mode when they talked together. Quote now, conversing with their spouses was to their bodies like facing off with a saber-toothed tiger. And some in this room may be able to relate to that. And as a result, these disastrous relationships deteriorated much more quickly. Now, in contrast, you look at the masters, quote now, they were calm both outwardly and physiologically. They were loving and warm toward each other, even in times of conflict. And 
the Gottman's explanation for this was there's a habit of mind that the masters have, which it's this. The masters are scanning the social environment for things that they can appreciate and say thank you for. The masters are building this culture of respect and appreciation very purposefully, whereas in contrast, the disasters were scanning the social environment for their partners' mistakes. That's quite a difference. To quote now the Gottmans, it's not just scanning the environment, chimed in Julie Gottman, it's scanning the partner for what the partner is doing right or scanning him for what he's doing wrong and criticizing versus respecting him and expressing appreciation. The Gottman said that contempt, they found, is the number one factor that tears couples apart. So people who are focused on criticizing their partners miss a whopping 50% of the positive thing their partners are doing and they see negatively things that aren't even there. So you think about the implications of this love lab study. Frankly, it convicts me as being a guilty husband. Let me just give some diary here. When Diane and I got married in 1982, our delightfully memorable honeymoon was stained with all kinds of conflict, I'm ashamed to say. She, I'm going to tell you, she spent so much time saying farewell to her bridesmaids and sisters that our getaway from Iowa was hours later than expected. And for a man who'd just gotten married, that's not a good start. She was, she was selective then about the restaurant we chose in Niagara Falls, and I sat with her on a bench on a flowery Toronto boulevard, and I lectured her that I was the leader of our relationship and that she needed to be willing to follow. And then after watching a Shakespearean play in Stratford, Ontario, we quarreled about some difference of opinion that, frankly, I can't even remember. But the bottom line of all of this was that I perceived in Diane flaws. As if I were Mr. Perfect. You imagine me with my hands on my hips in Toronto there. And I perceived flaws in her, and I was going to fix them. I was going to fix them by criticizing and correcting her. And I prided myself on transparency and confrontation. Speaking the truth in love. That was my life verse back in those days. Well, now, that was 82. So I want you to fast forward ahead 19 years later when my dad died. I told you about that last night. He died unexpectedly, suddenly, and, and I was just stunned and, and staggered and saddened by the great loss and the brevity of life. It just smacked me right in the face. And I remember late one night, my darling Diane lay beside me in our bed, and I had sat up and I was looking at her, and when I pondered over those 19 years of our marriage, she had been such a fountain of blessing and goodness to me. And I just mused. And I thought to myself, am I wise to spend the precious few moments that she and I still have together in our fleeting lives? Am I wise to be circling around her perceived quirks and flaws and to point them out and criticize them, which I think marked characteristically our marriage. And I sat there in that dark night and said, come on, Mark, life is too short. Let it go. That was an important phrase that I learned. Let it go. Don't obsess on her blemishes. Bask in her virtues. And that night, I think I made a quantum leap forward in being a Christ-like husband. Now, Paul tells husbands to love their wives. You know the passage, Ephesians 5.25. It says, as Christ loved the church, 
men are to love their wives. It says right there in the verse 28 of Ephesians 5, love your wives as your own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. Charles Hodge, he's a Reformed theologian. I know it's early in the morning to be quoting Charles Hodge, but this is really good. Just just listen to this. Hodge says this, Marital love, therefore, is as much a dictate of nature as self-love, because it says, husband, love your wife as you love your own body. It's as much a dictate as self-love. And it's just as unnatural for a man to hate his wife as it would be for him to hate his own body. Hodge goes on, For a man may have a body which does not altogether suit him. He may wish his body were handsomer, healthier, stronger, more active. But, but still, still, it's, it's his body. It is himself, and so he nourishes it and cherishes it as tenderly as though it were the best and loveliest body a man ever had. That's the way you treat yourself, Robert. I I saw you. Your back was hurting, and you were pampering yourself yesterday. It's very natural. Hodge goes on. So, So a man may have a wife whom he could wish to be better, more beautiful, more agreeable, but still, she is his wife. And by the constitution of nature and the ordinance of God, she is a part of himself. In neglecting or abusing her, he violates the laws of nature as well as the law of God. It is thus how Paul presents the matter. And that's really insightful stuff. And I apply that to myself. I think of my own scarred, blemished, Odd-looking body. I mean, look at the nose that God gave to me. But it's my nose. And and in that strange sense, I love my own body. It naturally gets daily pampering and primping from me. And certainly my precious bride deserves the same royal tender treatment because God gave her to me. She's mine. In the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul describes the the love husbands should show to their wives. Think of it. It says, love suffers long. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Mark, I need to say to myself, doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. Thinks no evil. Doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is so important to me natively. I was telling somebody, I am not an encouraging person natively at all. My default setting is criticism. I have a hawk eye for the bad and a bat's eye for the good. That's the way I came out of the womb. But the Word of God has had a positive effect on me in my marriage in particular, I think, I hope, because I've discovered that my Diane is an exquisite and delicate vase who deserves my honoring and my polishing and my encouraging and not my belittling and my rough handling and my criticizing. You know what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Listen carefully. Just just ponder this in view of the Word of God. Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wife in an understanding way, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, that tender, vast, fragile, and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, courteous, not returning evil for evil but or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So, husbands, I understand there is still indeed a place for loving confrontation because you're going to lead... And if you're going to love your wives as Christ, love the church, 
there will be confrontation. But gentlemen, we, generally speaking, need to dial it down. We need to pick our battles. We must take on the personality of encourager and put off the persona of a fault finder. Maybe, I don't know you in particular, but if you're like me, this is what you need to hear. Husbands should be Proverbs 31 men. We know what a Proverbs 31 woman is like, but in Proverbs 31, it tells us what we as husbands are to be like. How about this little slot here? It says, her children rise up and call her blessed. And what does it say about the husband? Her husband also, and he praises her. Is that the way it is with you, Steve? All right. Because it says that you, if you're a Proverbs 31 man, that you praise her. And we as husbands ought to take a page out of Solomon's husbanding manual in the Song of Solomon. A husband must put on heavy and affectionate and affirming encouragement. We need to find the good. And we need to overlook the not so good. Think about Song of Solomon there. That, that exemplary groom is extravagant in his loving his bride with words of encouragement and compliment and affirmation. You think about the Song of Solomon. Think of how he's talking about his bride. He says in one fifteen, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair, you have dove's eyes. Those are kind, those are affirming, those are praising words. Or 4.2, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing. Every one of them bears twins and none is barren among them. It's interesting how Solomon basks in the fact that his beautiful bride still has all her teeth. And 3,000 years ago, that was quite an extraordinary delicacy. She's got them all. So, so, so look at this husband. He's ever scanning her life for things worthy of his appreciation. And then he verbally expresses what it is about her that absolutely delights him. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ Jesus was not the silent type. He was the talking type. A river of words came from the Lord Jesus. Think of the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, the Upper Room Discourse. He was always talking to his bride. And so we need to be talkers. And we see the kind of encouraging talk that a good husband brings. Look at 6.9. You are fair, my love, and there is no spot in you or my dove, my perfect one, there is none like you. Those are really strong words that ought to come from us. Our wives ought to hear that from us. I remember a few years ago, Diane got away for a couple of days. She was spending some time in Chicago with her sisters, and this left me back in West Michigan, home alone with our five children, and we were fine for the first few hours. But then, you walk, you've had this happen. Steve, you've probably had this happen. You walk by the picture window and you say, well, when is she coming back? And the kids would do the same thing because dad was there. The fact of the matter is that when, when Diane was in the home, I, I tell her she is the giver of life. Our family life is in technicolor. But when Diane's gone we're reduced to an old black and white film because they do bring color and a glow to our relationship. And I, and I told her that. That's where that phrase come from. Honey, when you're gone, we're black and white, but you bring back technicolor. And, and I hope over the years that I am learning to be a better husband. Okay, so men, I've, I've talked to you. In, in the Holland Church, people say, PC, they call me PC. Pastor Chansky, PC is always tough on the guys. He always goes with bare knuckles against the guys. He says, he treats the ladies with such kid gloves. Well, let me now, moving from husbanding to wifing, let me try to talk openly to you ladies. 
Let's go back to Downton Abbey. Mrs. Drake, whom we encountered there in the beginning of this message, wisely helped her husband by seeing that he received strengthening adrenaline, right? The heroic life-saving action that Mrs. Drake took for her husband kind of epitomizes well her God-assigned role as a, heard that phrase, helper suitable, help me. The Lord in Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable to him. And that term helper in the Hebrew, no doubt, Kurt and Steve, you probably know this, helper is the Hebrew word ezer, which means a strength giver. So you are a helpmeet, but really you're an ezer. It means if you're a, a woman who's a wife, you are a strength giver. You know that old hymn that we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, these familiar lines have the word Ebenezer in it. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. See, the Lord is identified as an Ebenezer who helped Israel conquer the Philistines, so they called him their Ebenezer, which means stone of help. He is our strength giver, and that's you, ladies, ladies. You are a helpmeet to your husband. You are to be a strength giver to him. You're to help your husband conquer the foes of life because you're his helper suitable. Now, ladies, I'm trying to be honest with you here. Some wives fail to strengthen their husbands by infusing strengthening adrenaline and inadvertently hurt their husbands by overexposing them to weakening kryptonite. You know what kryptonite is? Liam, you know what kryptonite is? Yeah, it's what makes Superman, who is really undefeatable, it crushes him. It's his, it's his weak area, point of vulnerability. Ladies, you're to be a strength giver not a kryptonite emanator in the presence of your husband. There, there's a woman who's written a book. Her name is uh, Kim Wagner. It's called Fierce Woman. You ever see that? I recommend it. Fierce Woman, subtitle, The Power of a Soft Warrior. And in this book, Kim Wagner confesses how she, a high-octane woman, I've written a book called Woman of Dominion. And, and womanly dominion, to be a, a woman who subdues and rules, that's a good thing. And Kim Wagner is a woman of dominion. But she writes how she grew disillusioned with her husband's flawed leadership in their marriage. See, her husband was a pastor of a flourishing church, but in her mind, he just didn't measure up. And, and Kim Wagner says, I was critical, intimidating, and impatient and I left my husband feeling like he just couldn't do anything right so that he spiraled downward into a sense of discouragement. And Wagner reveals, she says, I was repulsed by his, his depression. He, he needed to get his act together and, and be a man. And then her husband, Leroy, surprised him by resigning from the ministry. And she says, for me, that was a wake-up call. She says, the Lord convicted me that I hadn't been the gentle and quiet helper I should have been. God called me to be a gentle and quiet spirit in 1 Peter 3, but rather, she says, I had become a brash and loud hurter. I was kryptonite to my husband. Now, retrospectively, she analyzed the early years of her marriage, and she recognized that she had harshly countered her husband's leadership with her superior plan all the time and her hypercritical spirit and her take-charge personality. She had systematically emasculated him, her words. So Wagner, ladies, is not alone in her critical spirit. There could be some such fierce women among us even now. 
but I know nothing about what's going on in the West Coast. I'm just shooting in the dark. But the Lord brought me here. In confessing her own critical wifely tendencies, Martha Peace, everybody, anybody read any of Martha Peace ever? You know of her. She's, she's a wonderful woman. She hit the mark by saying about herself, as my husband's helpmeet, he needs my helpful suggestions and not my sarcastic put-downs. That's what Martha Peace was saying about herself, you know, I think in the upper room, how the Lord Jesus said, some one of you is going to betray me. And what was the godly response? It was, is it I, Lord? Am I the one? Yeah, I don't know what's going on in this room, but, but, but could it be that this is designed for you? She goes on to say, for a wife, a crucial battle is fighting the common plague of critical and disrespectful talk to her husband. You realize that the book of Proverbs makes no little thing of this, don't you? Just let me read from the Proverbs. 21.9, it says, Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared by a contentious woman. Or it also says in 25.24, Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. You say, you just read that. I know, but it's twice. The same proverb is twice. Repetition is significant in the Scriptures. Who said amen? Trey. Trey, you're not supposed to say amen at this point. Let the ladies listen to the Word of God. It also says in 21.9 of Proverbs, when you get married, you'll understand, Trey. It says, Proverbs 21.19, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Or it says in 27.15, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. So there, there is a pattern here. There is. A husband needs his wife to be the reviving corner for him in the fight of life. I wish I didn't have to display ourselves, ladies, as being so vulnerable, but we men are. We need you. You ever seen boxers getting pummeled in the ring, but at the round's end, they retreat to their corner for reinvigorating encouragement and refreshment, and the exhausted boxer hears things, his shoulders are being rubbed, things like, okay, okay, you took some hits, but you also delivered some good ones too. You are the man. You have what it takes to get back out there and to take down that Goliath. Well, wives, you are to be that strengthening corner that your husband needs. And the adrenaline of encouragement is a crucial ingredient to your helper coaching. Remember what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11? Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. In other words, abound all the more in the amount of encouragement that you're already giving. So a husband comes home to his wife and he retreats to his corner. He's often bruised and beaten. He doesn't need the kryptonite of a critical spirit. He needs the adrenaline of a cheering encourager and wives must be helpers with their words and not herders. Just consider how all wives are daughters of Eve. Remember Eve? Eve who was enticed into destroying her marriage and her whole world by craving for more. More. I want more. See, God, think of Eve. God had nestled her very comfortably in a paradise that was stocked with unimaginable plenty, including trees with low-hanging sweet fruit and and a good, arguably, even a very good husband. But for Eve, paradise just just wasn't enough. Eve wanted more. And it's that seed of dissatisfaction that the serpent craftily 
watered. Right, didn't he say? He said to the woman, Indeed, hath God said, you, you shall not eat from every true tree in the garden? 3-1 of Genesis. See, he hissed the insinuation that God had stingily restricted her from something better. That, that desire for more is something that is sinful in womanhood. Fierce woman, Kim Wagner, again writes, she says this, Eve's ingratitude took her from the lush garden of peaceful contentment and drove her into the wilderness of desolate places, always seeking painful longing, insatiable hunger, empty dreams. Kim tells the story how when she was in the car driving to an initial counseling session with a friend who had gotten into a, an affair with a forbidden fruit relationship, and she told her husband Leroy about it as she was on her way, Leroy the pastor, and she said, can you give me any counsel as I speak to this woman? Anything you could say to me that would be helpful? And Leroy thought, and he just spoke one word, and that word was, tell her about gratitude. Gratitude in that situation. As no doubt Leroy himself had felt the burn of Kim's own DNA because in her relationship with him, he sensed a lack of fundamental gratitude. Rush Limbaugh just died just this last week, right? There was somebody who kind of arose during the same era, Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Anybody know who she is? Dr. Laura. She was on the radio. This, she's not a Christian woman, but kind of a Dutch uncle, no, a Dutch aunt who just would tell truth about things. She has a book that came out years ago. It's called The Proper Care and Feeding of Husbands. And it grew out of her receiving and evaluating thousands of comments from men all around the country. And she has a chapter. It's called, You're a Nag. I love quoting women when I talk to women. It's a book written to women. You're a nag. And Dr. Laura wrote this. The universal complaint of men who emailed my website with their opinions about the proper care and feeding of husbands was that their wives criticize and complain and nag, rarely compliment or express appreciation, are difficult to satisfy, and basically not as nice to them as they'd be to a stranger ringing their doorbell at 3 a.m. Now, many men divulged how they were esteemed outside their home as competent professionals by their colleagues, but were treated inside the home as bumbling buffoons who just seemingly could never get anything right in her eyes. Jim wrote, here's a quote, it's in the book. It says, Jim wrote, I've always had superlative evaluations on my performances, but at home, I can't, this is full caps, I can't do anything right. I sometimes spend several minutes in thought on a task at hand, trying to decide exactly what to do, and then after weighing the pros and the cons, I make a decision to act, and almost invariably I get, what'd you do that for? Now I can't, or who put the blankety-blank here? And sometimes she straight out says to me, that's just stupid. He says, there's some things that just wears you down like erosion. Robert, I was once in, in Sedona, Arizona with my wife. We were at a gift shop, and there was a T-shirt that we saw there. It made me just break out laughing. And I asked, well, it said this, Robert, what do you think about it? T-shirt says, if a man speaks in a forest where his wife can't hear him, is he still wrong? Diane didn't think it was nearly as funny as I thought it was when we saw it at the gift shop at Sedona. You see, discouraging talk can make a man's home kind of a kryptonite corner. But, but wives should know that there's a great upside to the wise bridling and kind use of the tongue. It says in Proverbs 15.4, a soothing tongue 
is a tree of life. So, so kind and encouraging words from a wife to a husband. I'm telling you, ladies, it's just downright adrenaline. They, they, they send men back to the ring singing instead of sulking because of what you told us we could do when we spent that time with you in the corner. David Henry Thoreau wrote this. Listen now, listen carefully. The mass of men lead lives of quiet depression and go to the grave with their song still in them. And I think that's, that's really sad. But it's interesting how the Lord got a song out of Adam by giving him Eve. Remember that after a time, God declared, it's just not good for man should be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And, and after the man wakes up and beholds his tailor-made wife, we read the first recorded words of a man. And you know what they come in? They come in the form of Hebrew poetry. It's not prose. It's poetry. In other words, it's song. Eve got the song out of the man. In fact, we should kind of read it this way. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. I tell my boys, I say, I think it went like this. When Adam woke up and saw her, I think he said, whoa, man. Because there is something about a woman that gets the song out of a man. I think it's true. It does take a woman to get the song out of a man. Men, I'm telling you, ladies, we desperately need our wives. There's a one commentator, he addresses wives, and he says this, do you, do you truly understand the immense power that you have in the life of your husband? Every wife, he says, is a kingmaker. She has the power to build him up or tear him down. How will you use your power today, lady? From the man's perspective, if a woman doesn't believe in him, if she's not fanatically committed to his potential, it doesn't much matter what everybody else thinks. Ladies, he says, we need your information. We have to have it, and oh, how we thrive on it. Typically, men are quiet about these things. We are. I, I'm just telling you what your husbands would say if they had the transparency and maybe the humility and the vulnerability to say it. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. I'm I'm pulling back the curtain, and she's seeing all the fragility that's inside of us. But men are quiet about these things. But that doesn't mean we don't need and enjoy your affirmation. And every man feels it. And when his woman is behind him, he can slay dragons. I once gave this sermon in Greenville, South Carolina. There was a gentleman who came up to me. His name was Lou. Lou came up to me, and you know, in that southern drawl, it says, Oh, Pastor Mark, I've been waiting so many years for someone to say that to my wife. And I said, Lou, how long have you been married? He said, 54 years. <laughs> true story, true. Tim and Kathy Keller, I, I quoted him last night again. They perceptively explain the peculiar power of a wife to be an easer, to be a strength giver. Tim writes, he says, In my own life, I must confess that I had never felt manly until I got married. I was a nerd before it was fashionable, Play, playing trumpet in the marching band and staying in the Boy Scouts through high school. Good things, no doubt, but it just wasn't cool. It wasn't macho at all. And I was often mocked and excluded, especially during high school, for my uncoolness. But Kathy, Kathy, my wife, she looked at me like her knight in shining armor. And she always told me and continues to tell me that though all the world may look at me and see Clark Kent, 
she knows that underneath I have on blue underwear. Keller goes on. She has always been very quick to point out and celebrate anything I've done that's courageous. And over the years, bit by bit, it sunk in. To my wife, I'm Superman. And it makes me feel like a man, like nothing else could. You know, the reality is that if there's no Kathy Keller pillow talk, there's no Tim Keller sermon roar. He never would have become the man that he became if not for the easer help meeting of Kathy. Women, you can turn the world upside down by your position, by your role in so many ways. Even fierce Kim Wagner asks, do you brag on your husband? Do you brag on him to his face and to others in front of him? Do you let him know specific ways that you are proud of him? Do you affirm him for making difficult choices? Do you remind him of things he's done well when he's struggling with fear of failure? As at the beginning he says, I was amazed, Leroy says, I was amazed at how much I needed her reinforcement. It's fuel for my motor. That's what Leroy said. I can still remember being in Georgia on St. Simon's Island. I was preaching this sermon, and it was just before this sermon was preached, there was a woman named Autumn, and her husband Josh had lost his job about eight months earlier, but he took on a lawn care business, started it from scratch, and now it was thriving. And as she sat on the other side of that round table, she was bragging on her Josh. And you could just see his face beaming because she, Autumn, thought the world of him, Josh. Ladies, what impact are we having? Dr. Gary Chapman reports that he met Bill and Betty in Little Rock in Arkansas at a seminar that he'd given. He only had one hour to help them, and after 12 years and two children, their marriage was in an absolute shambles. They, they disagreed on everything, and they wondered why they even married each other in the first place. And Bill's chief complaint was, there's simply no affection coming from her. I work my butt off, and simply there's no appreciation from her. And Betty Jo sighed, okay, he's an excellent provider, but he does nothing around the house to help me. He, he, he never has any time for me. And Chaplin just had one word of advice, and he turned to Betty Jo. He encouraged her to think hard and come up with a list of legitimate positive traits about Bill. And she did, and she kind of reluctantly wrote them down. Uh, he hasn't missed a day in 12 years. He's aggressive in his work. He's received several promotions throughout the years and is always thinking of ways to improve his productivity. He makes the house payment each month. He pays the gas and the electric water bill. Oh, she's really struggling here, isn't she? He bought a recreational vehicle for us, the family, three years ago. He mows the grass and rakes the leaves. He provides plenty of money for food and for clothing. And Chapman urged Betty Jo to keep experimenting, keep looking for virtues in Bill, and then verbally express appreciation in timely ways. And after two months, Gary called Bill and asked if the marital climate had changed. And Bill's response was this, she's actually made me feel like a man again. Oh, we got a way to go, Dr. Chapman, but I really think we're on the road. You see, ladies, listen to me. Sweet encouragement far outperforms bitter nagging. Just, just imagine this scenario. Be, be creative, ladies. Be creative. A, a wife wants the trash taken out after dinner you could bark out your will and then you could nag him every five minutes about it and then he probably finally would take out the trash and then you might mumble something like it's about time but there could be another scenario to that just think of a wife sweetly saying hey honey i put the bag by the door for you and when you have time could you take it out and just throw it into the dumpster and then when your husband does that you can catch him on the way back into the house, wrap your arms around him, give him a big hug and the twinkle in your eye, tell him how hard it is for you to take that 
heavy dumpster lid with one arm and then lift that heavy bag with the other, and you can say, you are my sweet babe. And that wife, that wife has just made her cart Kent into a superman because, listen, ladies, adrenaline is a lot better than kryptonite. Amen. A husband wants an encouraging, admiring bride, not one who criticizes and belittles him. You see, wives need to, and here's this word, respect their husband. That's, in many ways, ladies, that's, that's all we want. It's respect, and that's why the Hebrews 5 passage, husband loved your wives as Christ loved the church and gave us above her, it says this, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love your wife as himself. And listen, and let the wife see that she, what's the word? Respects her husband. Ephesians 5.33. So that story of Kim and Leroy, it has a happy ending to it. Leroy writes appreciatively of Kim his improved, sweetened, and softened warrior wife. Here's what he writes. Where at one point I was so paralyzed by fear that I wouldn't even make a decision because I knew that there could be repercussions and negative consequences. Now I don't fear a reprisal. Now I have the freedom to go to God, to pray, to lead. And even if it doesn't turn out to be the greatest decision, if I fumble or drop the ball in some way, I know Kim will say, well, you're still my man and we'll trust the Lord together. I know that she'll give encouragement, and I once thought our marriage was going to crush both of us to death, but now we experience freedom and joy in our relationship. It's a, it's a safe place. So Kim, the fiercely criticizing and weakening herder, had become the fiercely encouraging and strengthening Helper. I just leave it with you, ladies. Could it be that there's a word in season? You know, it says like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in season. I don't have a clue what's going on on the West Coast. What the Lord does, and the Lord brought me here, and may it be that the Lord would enable us to say, search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful or sinful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May the Lord Jesus give us grace to be daily dispensers of adrenaline-like encouragement to our spouses, both men and women, husbands and wives, bringing healthy and a strong pulse to our marriages.